from the lucid fringe A Capetonian in Central Europe Part 2 Beyond Habsburgs and Ottomans A Surfeit of Baroque Vienna in July Vienna is the faded old queen of Europe enthuses a friend back at Cape Town Airport, as we meet up on one of those lovely chance encounters, waiting for our luggage. London, Paris, Rome, Berlin, Moscow, Istanbul, Vienna. Capitals of the great 19th century empires. Spot the odd one out? Vienna, these days, is the capital of a rather middling size Central European state, so it is largely preserved at an almost manageable size. Then again, I'm not really into preservation, per se. In Cape Town, for years, we had a venue we all quietly moaned about playing at, in the main tourist district, whose proud claim was to be dedicated to the preservation of jazz, as if jazz needed to be pickled in a jar, starved of fresh air. Vienna's not quite as stuffy as all that these days. I do, however, manage an old-style coffee with cream and a Viennese pastry in a classic coffee shop opposite the Design Museum, though another friend offers me coffee and cream back in the Cape, claiming it's actually healthier than milk, so maybe it's the new fashion, too. We're told later that the coffee shop in question got into trouble some years back for turfing out a lesbian couple, but these days the staff are diverse and the pastries are still soft and delicious. I sip and do my best Freudian angst face, just for fun. The food is definitely better than Vienna's in South Africa, the generic name for factory-produced sausages boiled in water, on a par with Russians. Having grown up in the UK only with hamburgers and frankfurters, these names were new to me 30 years ago, but since I don't eat them anyway, they remain linguistic curiosities rather than distinctive tastes. Here in the Austrian capital there's a wide range of dishes on offer, like any other big world city perhaps these days, including a fabulous and massive Italian pizza picked up next to the train station. Austria always had a strong link to Italy, but of course to a host of other places too. And the metro trains show me a Vienna that's a much more healthy mix of peoples than I had anticipated. Slovenia was noticeably pale in comparison, for all its cultural riches and flower boxes in every window. Here, social housing in unusual state blocks is bursting with greenery, and real Turkish fare is sold in the markets, that 1683 siege between the old clashing empires, Habsburg and Ottoman, now very distant. I recall writing a university essay on the Turkish invasions of the South East, and somebody thought I was writing about takeaway kebab vans in Kent. 
There is a somewhat apocryphal story that suggests a Habsburg spy, whose information was vital in lifting the siege, received confiscated coffee beans as reward and opened the first Viennese coffee shop, leading to the craze taking off in Central Europe and the first caffeine addicts, including J. S. Bach, composer of the Coffee Cantata. Said spy also sold the now-typical Austrian breads in the shape of a crescent to celebrate victory over the Ottomans. Later some French visitors took the idea home, involved puff pastry, and turned them into croissants instead. One of the last things we saw in Slovenia was the interior of a church south of Petui, up in another pretty hilltop hamlet surrounded by forest. It was a Monday afternoon, yet there was a service happening, a priest speaking biblical passages in a feisty Slovenian while the congregation nodded on. We tourist interlopers were there for what stood behind him. The most extraordinary medieval altar, vivid, detailed, so voluptuously carved you'd want to touch it for all its chastity. And there was a clue, perhaps, to what happened next in Europe's cultural development, for later sculptors also adorned the interior with their commissioned works, attempting to compete and be seen in the face of this central masterpiece. The end result? A serious surfeit of Baroque, dressed up in pilgrim's clothes. I first became aware of the exquisite interiors of many old churches when in Prague and Budapest in my twenties. Then it was the contrast I felt compared to England. I love the great English Gothic cathedrals and their crisp feel inside, but of course that's a result of Cromwell destroying icons, frescoes, art in general, a wild protest against what came before. In Vienna, St Stephen's is a radically different experience. Here one feels the heart of an ancient empire, every corner competing for the eye, every holy Roman emperor making a mark with the aid of those artists willing to describe the stories sanctioned by their patrons. The place drips with serious power. It is not the only such example. The columns outside Karlskirche are far too big to have any practical purpose. Instead, they say, we are the ones in control, ancient Roman style. The entrance to the Hofburg says much the same. And the grand plutz separating the Natural History Museum, science, from the Art History Museum. Inside there's definitely a surfeit of Baroque, but my takeaways are a far greater appreciation for the incredible level of detail and sophistication put into the paintings. Raphael's colours so much more impressive in real bold canvases than in the same flattened, overused images in print or on screen. I appreciate too, both here and in the Design Museum, M-A-K, Mac, the clever curation, another kind of art in itself. Here the names flash past me, but a Baroque woman painting herself, naked, into an otherwise surprisingly masculine scene of Bacchanal, is a bit of quiet provocation amongst the excesses of male gaze Rococo flesh. Of course there's been restoration too, Another painstaking piece of artistic endeavour, carrying things on. No Raphael painting was ever just his work anyway, all of it born from great studios of production, chef and sous-chefs. And this is old Vienna, too, writ large. Extraordinary, though it must have sometimes felt a stifling place to be a radical in the run-up to World War. 
and it all still stands, remarkably unbombed. Schönbrunn Palace, the Habsburg Versailles, with Kew-style greenhouses and wide passages for carriages, is a dominant and dominating statement, at least as vast in its attempt to geometrically control landscapes and say, you're nothing, I'm everything, as any pharaoh's pyramid. And all dressed up, no doubt, since European kings invented drag and high heels. I like getting into my feminine lipstick side as much as the next male drama teacher, but anybody who thinks it's somehow inherently transgressive should see what Louis XIV looked like in his portraits while he was encouraging young women into ballet contortions for his edification. Personally liberating for us blokes these days, perhaps, after a century or two of dour Western men's clothing, but male desire to wear skirts and tights is clearly neither a sign of being disadvantaged nor especially dangerous to the patriarchy. Since 1900 or before, architects have had to eke something new out in between these admittedly impressive hulks, just like the artists I seek out as my own relief. Clinton, Sheila, and a bunch of less celebrated ones, some women, largely in the past, kept out of the galleries, unless, of course, they took their clothes off for male painters. While the first psychoanalysts were wondering why everybody was feeling neurotic, with Hitler wandering the culturally extravagant streets. Of course, the large Jewish portion of the financing that lifted cultural possibility in Vienna was brutally snuffed out and a more broken, initially occupied, post-war Viennese culture took shape. Hitler's own eerie sketches of buildings and gardens emptied of people, any human tension left unexpressed, are thankfully nowhere to be seen. Next to St Stephen's, there are Art Deco religious frescoes over old shops that now disastrously show off yellow M signs. I take myself on a tour by the Danube Canal, looking for the breath of fresh city air that is Hundertwasser, his buildings inspiring so many quirky designers since, including, however subconsciously, all over South Africa's cultural refuges, though maybe he just picked up on the collective unconscious and its need for a bit more colour, for mixing plant life back into the walls, for mixing up shapes so there's minarets on apartment blocks and mosaics on power stations. Elsewhere there's a one-storey with a golden cabbage on top, the secession art movement's building still flying one of the obligatory we're tolerant, see? corporate Pride Month flags, although it's now July, so they're late. In South Africa, things move on. July is Mandela Month. He was born on the 18th, for other kinds of charity. Before August, Women's Month, with a public holiday on the 9th that remembers the non-racial Women's March for Justice in the 1950s. Here in Vienna, things are still a bit stuck sometimes, it seems. My father, remembering vehement Austrian police in the past arresting folk for jaywalking, warns me against stepping out of line. I, however, watch for skateboarders and Italians on cell phones, who don't seem to mind crossing before the more law-abiding locals, and I semi-innocently follow their lead. Oh, Vienna, sang English new romantics with tinny synths in the background, in what must be one of the most ubiquitous and least inspiring examples of this city's worldwide cultural reach. I had hoped to catch some live classical music, given the number of violins arriving at the airport, 
but the summer season seems more aimed at pickled Mozart than any cutting-edge presentations by the Vienna Phil. Not surprising, really. This city is the ultimate Disneyland for those skating the surface of the classical, but there is a musical edge a little out of reach on such a short visit, including jazz again, which I can imagine is often intricate and heartfelt. The intense creativity of the Swiss musical world, invested in thoroughly, of course, completely belies their reputation for staidness, and things look to be similar here in neighbouring Austria. There's a conscious dance the day after I leave. There are modern esoteric gatherings in the woods, which even here in Vienna aren't far away at all. A deer leaps in front of me in the last woody visit for this trip. Catholic sensibilities can definitely be escaped with a little determination. I'm intrigued. Very happy to be returning home, but full of gratitude for the multiple tastes in Vienna and on this whole European trip. It's time to leave the Baroque behind for a while. I'll be back in a few years, perhaps, when I've digested it all. On the banks of the Bosphorus. Winter in Istanbul. At the Istanbul Museum of Modern Art, there were a series of works by Turkish women, including one made up of archaeological historical rubble, regrouped, given limbs, and placed on new islands where different cultural periods could speak to each other. I haven't explored the rest of Turkey yet, but that is of course very much a picture of the country. Istanbul represents a centre of the centrifuge, the imperial meeting point, as Turkish Airlines also puts it, though without mentioning the imperial aspect of their hub, the latest multi-ethnic empire based around here. Arriving, I am suitably impressed, as intended, by the modern metro and bus and tram network, even if the tourist ticket price is definitely aimed high. Building a metro in such a hilly place is quite a feat. One station I get on at has five escalators into the depths before I reach the platform. It reminds one that this really is a weird location, where the Atlantic Ocean, squeezed along the Mediterranean, is squeezed further into various things that look like rivers but are actually subject to ocean tides and salt water principles, and will eventually lead into that additional ocean oddity, the Black Sea. A really solid place to build a fortress and protect an empire, and therefore the Romans did for over a thousand years after the Greeks had established things and a place that, whether the Greeks or the Turks like it or not, looks geographically not unlike hilly coastal Athens down the road. All this I know. Byzantium, Constantinople, Istanbul is the stuff of many a history lesson I've learnt or given. It is strange and exhilarating to finally set foot here, in the dim winter light of a drizzly dawn. First thing to do in modern Turkey find a place for a tiny bitter coffee and a piece of syrupy pistachio-infused baklava and land a little till I can see and sense more. This is a taste of the modern city. A young man serves me and speaks a little English. I feel rather self-conscious at speaking no Turkish at all and it all seems so very foreign. Turkish is not an Indo-European language at all so even with my love of languages I'm lost. Teşek Kürler, I discover, which is not quite as straightforward as donkey. Or there's a real thank you, that's çok teşekkür ederim 
which I finally learn in time for the biggest gratitude I need to give in my two days here. And then I begin to wander, finding my way with the crowd towards the sites of the Sultan Ahmed district. I've already spotted some exquisite-looking minarets, but the first surprising things I'm noticing are cats, and dogs, but this is primarily a city of cats. I've been in plenty of cities with stray animals all over the place. Istanbul's seem very different, though. They're not straggly street felines, but sleek and loved. There's one on the tram platform, curled up on a seat, and everyone lets it stay there. There's one in a flower bed, down in the metro station. Another perched on a parked Vespa seat. There are cats on empty cafe tables, sauntering round restaurants, ambling through markets and mosques. In the Blue Mosque, somebody asks, and their guide explains that it's their religious duty to look after creatures of Allah. Whatever it is, it's charming. Communal ownership and care for the city's pets, and certainly as far as cats are concerned, acknowledgement of what we all know to be true, that cats only belong to individual humans up to a point. Even with the crowds, and the cacophony of guides to listen to in different languages, I rotate a bit as I'm on my own, by taking shoes off to enter the mosque and padding across carpets that have been regularly replaced since early Ottoman times, I find a certain peace here in the Blue Mosque. It's temporary. The beauty of the windows and the roofs and the columns and the arches hints at life and movement coming back. And suddenly the lights come on, to gasps, as the colours and patterns are seen in higher definition. But it's not the only time I'll find the calm of the mosques. Later on I find it again with exquisite tiling, in Rustam Pasha Mosque, in the middle of the madness of Eminurnu's stalls and streets. Locals are stepping in for a little time out. And I need it too, for this part of Istanbul is pretty intense. I'm not a natural haggler, and Turks famously thrive on it, though there are a few opportunities to pay fixed prices for the dazzling range of goods on offer. I'm scammed creatively at one point on a bridge over the Golden Horn. A shoe shiner drops his brush, which I rescue, and, as gratitude, he gets to work completely needlessly on the tackies I just bought and tries to charge me a silly figure, then feigns disgust when I just give him a small note for the entertainment value. But then he claims to be a hustler from Ankara. Even with the capital officially elsewhere, Istanbul is still a natural magnet. I know that Istanbul sees itself as this melting pot of cultures and ideologies as it always has, and although there are women with hijabs, especially in official, outward-facing posts, most of the women I see are doing without. It's a reminder that long before the Iranian religious revolution, modern Turkey had one, setting itself up as a secular state with an eye on European integration. However, I have to wonder if things were freer even here 50 years ago, when it was an essential hippie stop. Vinyl record covers I spot in one typically eclectic Balat store give hints. Long-haired Turkish men and women from the sexy 70s, reminding me of those old pre-Khomeini photos of Iranian middle-class women in bikinis. Istanbul is, of course, simultaneously the biggest city in Europe and not. It's definitely bigger than any other city that has a foot in Europe, even Moscow, but it isn't all actually in Europe. 
I don't make it over the Bosphorus to the Asian side of things, although of course the whole European continent thing is a cultural construct rather than anything geographical. Europe is a rather curly series of peninsulas at the end of Asia, and an epoch ago, when medieval Islam shone out at the Old World, everybody outside of Western Christendom knew that. The covered market is a good place to retreat for a while from the rain. Dealers in antiques and trinkets are thick on the ground. It's not surprising to me, having been in the Top Cuppy Palace complex. The main difference I see between the average European autocrat and the Islamic variety is that most of the Ottomans were actually good at something creative, even if it wasn't ruling. They weren't just expecting to be entertained and look pretty, like Louis XIV, but were expected to learn some skills in forging beauty, as seen in their personal calligraphy, for example. And calligraphy is a case in point about the extent of the quest for artistic beauty. The writing itself is beautiful. So are the pens. So are the ink pots. So are the boxes for the pens and for the books. A whole chain of expert artists and crafters. Everything takes on its beautiful ceremonial aspect in this world. Clocks, axe heads, even exquisitely jewelled rifles that I'm sure were never used in anger, though they had plenty that were. The Ottomans had their own period of Baroque stylishness, but after the centuries and the end of empire, much of it has been democratised and sold to the ordinary punter in the market alleys. Traders take it in turns to prepare tea, chai, expertly carrying it to each other on trays through the throng. Ottoman costumes were preserved too at Topkapi, wrapped up at the end of a royal's life. Robes a blinkered western male might see as too feminine, but they're gorgeous, a culture that knows and loves textiles. It's quite a contrast to the average citizen today, though. Many of the clothes of either sex veer between grey and dark grey, which is a little unflattering under the winter clouds. I long for turquoise. The sweet stalls obviously provide, as does the embroidery. Even locally embroidered makes that claim to be Christian Dior in a little self-deprecation. The difference between genuine craftsmanship and tacky capitalist branding is an intriguing one to contemplate. Plenty of Turkish delight available in tempting-looking rolls and squares, but other sweetmeats too, flavoured delicately, as one might expect, with things like rose water. There's a boom in traditional Turkish soft drinks, sugary, but I try one anyway, peach and lavender flavour. The haggling isn't subtle, but the scents definitely are. Perfumes are an essential part of creative sophistication here, coming particularly from that sensual bathhouse culture which will be my final gift to myself in this flying visit. I'm not quite sure how to enter Hagia Sophia, and wander round cobbled side streets past Borek stalls and other bread stands. Eventually I join the crowds, removing shoes, and enter the Grand Dome, with its extra minarets to make it Muslim. Calling the faithful in all four directions. They are so fundamental in every religion, it seems. It's truly an amazing feat, not just a big building for the sake of it. It does make me wonder, though, where are the East Romans that built this place? I see a few remnants of Constantinople's walls here and there, and actually walk up to some above the alleys of Balat. Super thick, but in the end, just a wall, and determined humans will always find a way through.
One piece of the old Byzantine palaces remains up on the hillside, yet I find when entering that it became a place for Ottoman kilns. Initially this sounds prosaic until I make the connection that here's where lots of the marvellous tiles in the mosques came from. Layers. In Istanbul it's always layers. Down in Balat there's Hagia Sophia's Christian successor, the patriarchal cathedral that is still the headquarters of the Orthodox churches internationally. An official with an extremely long ancient title gives me a chatty response to my email inquiry about popping in. Somehow that seems very Greek, as it should. In Topkapi there was a room of sacred artefacts, including a number of sandals and footprints of the Prophet, and the famous Staff of Moses. The Orthodox Cathedral is pretty unassuming from the outside, but inside it's a golden feast, and its own relics include the whipping post where Jesus was lashed, as well as some saints' bones that were recently returned from Rome in a rare moment of Catholic Orthodox rapprochement. I light a candle for peace. Later, the owner of the boiled sweet manufacturers to the Ottomans engages me around Zapiro's latest cartoon. Zapiro is our wonderful Jewish heritage South African cartoonist, and we're in the news for South Africa's case against the Israeli government at The Hague. You can join the dots. There are other representative churches around the place too. St Stephen's Bulgarian Orthodox is an entirely prefab iron number, which is about a hundred times prettier than that sounds. The Armenian and Syriac churches are closed when I try and nose around, and the Patriarch of Jerusalem isn't in town, so his little chapel is also off-limits, like the synagogues. Istanbul was a byword for tolerance, when the conquistadors had finished kicking out infidels from Spain and were setting off for Mexico. And Ataturk's secular Turkey was one of the first places Trotsky got refuge before Stalin's men started playing hardball. There are adverts on the metro for a new series about Ataturk, presenting him as a pretty ferocious general in the regular European early 20th century style, nationalism in the forefront. Strange to realise that, having fought each other for so long, the Habsburgs and the Ottomans ended up on the same side in World War I, and their multi-ethnic polities were dismantled because they lost. I ponder this over another coffee with cardamom and other spices, boiled over sand. I sit in a tiny upstairs section, overhanging the narrow street. There are cafes serving rapid cappuccino here, but it seems to me that they are throwing out centuries of reasoning in doing so. Perhaps they should move to Beoglu. The northern side of the Golden Horn, the district of Beoglu, is a different place entirely. I reach there after picking up a grilled fish sandwich from near the boats in the south. The Galata Tower is not my favourite monument in the city, sticking out in a fairly brutal phallic manner on top of the hill, but around it is where Istanbul shows itself in all its hipness. Funky street art, international restaurants, cool cafes. I take a che in the obligatory glass, while a lesbian couple chats and smokes, inside, at a nearby table. Balat had a lot of bored student waiters. Istanbul University is on the south side. Here it's much more the place to be and the waiters are bigger on service, and lots of couples are out and about as the winter afternoon grows dark. There are posters for big concerts and dance and theatre events. In the modern art museum there was one graphic light installation that basically felt like a trance festival. I'm not sure Istanbul would push the boat out that far, at least publicly. 
I pass lots of music shops in one street, and the windows are lined with handcrafted ouds to make the mouth water. It's here that I find my favourite bookshop in the world, bar none, even after the chaotic one in Balat, where the enthusiastic owner gave me a list of Turkish authors to look out for in English translation. This one's got it all. Shelves full of current Turkish books of all flavours, second-hand books in another section, a cafe and a restaurant, and a library section too for older special things. Layers, layers. There are also lots of English books, some on the history of Istanbul, photos from the Roaring Twenties here, and a book with a bad caricature of Frida Kahlo on the cover. It's called Free the Tipple, get it? and is a book of cocktails inspired by female icons. Somehow I know it's going to be a terrible book. And yet the fact that this feminist, alcoholic little number in English is on sale in the heart of mostly Muslim Istanbul also feels like a hilarious affirmation of my trip and this city's part in it. Kilic Ali Pasha was one of the few Turkish heroes of the Battle of Lepanto, the great Ottoman naval defeat of the late 16th century. He was also born Italian, just another reminder that huge numbers of modern Turks and Istanbul residents also have a heritage in other parts of southern Europe, parts of which they ruled for centuries. It's no wonder they felt so aggrieved at being ignored in their EU application. I think there's still something in the Western European psyche and no doubt Greece fuels this, that sees Turks as dark and strange when they actually look like Italians and mostly wear soccer tops. Anyway, the mosque named for Kilic Ali Pasha is the only one I enter on my final day here, and I'm so glad I do, reminded once more of the peace so quickly possible. It's a great way to land before I enter the Hammam, also named for the same admiral, an equally peaceful Turkish Renaissance marvel. Part of the experience is a sherbet beforehand. Not the flavoured icing sugar junk of my childhood, but a Turkish original incorporating 30 natural flavours which my plebeian nose can't identify, though it's very refreshing. Then I'm pummeled, scraped, gently heated, soaked, covered in bubbles, and generally treated with professional care by a Turkish guy about my age with a substantial boop. It's wonderful, and as I'm slowly sipping my delicately flavoured black chai afterwards and reclining on the couches, I feel quite emotional. Partly for having decided I deserve this, and partly because matter-of-fact, caring, non-sexual contact between men is profound and necessary. The Turks seem to understand that. The baths are strictly single-sex, women treated by women at different times of the day. But I didn't really understand I was going to experience this when I followed my friend's advice about getting a Turkish bath. It is a wonderful way to complete this journey. And yet again, it's food for thought. So, thank you for listening to this latest episode in the series. And you can find all of my articles and my recordings lucidfringe.substack.com except my music and poetry from the past which is all available at simrickyarrow all one word dot bandcamp dot com and the background recordings and sounds that you will have heard are all either from those recordings or they are my own please do give this a 
rating if it's on your podcast app please spread the word if you enjoy what you hear and if you want to give me some feedback or commentary of course I'm very open to that any suggestions for future episodes okay enjoy see you next time ravings from the lucid fringe ravings from the lucid fringe